Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 45 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, December the 6th. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. First, I'll be interviewing Stefan Rust, CEO of Bitcoin.com. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory on how the prospect of a meaningful US-China trade deal is looking less and less likely. But now, let's talk to Stefan Rust. Well, uh, Stefan, uh, tell us, um, how does Bitcoin.com plan to expand in 2020? So, I mean, Australia already, you know, sort of Bitcoin Cash focused on two areas, really, payments and what I call sort of non-custodial financial services. And in the payment side, Bitcoin Cash has really done a good job in Australia. We have some really good partners. Bitcoin Cash has a lot of adoption over there. And so that's sort of a market that sort of we see as, as, as doing really well. For us, the way we want to expand is go and replicate the model that's happened in Townsville, as well as in Ljubljana in uh, Slovenia. How do we go city by city and enable each of those cities to accept Bitcoin Cash, 
the retailers in those cities to do that, as well as any other merchant or service provider uh, on a physical level so that you can actually go with your Bitcoin.com wallet or any other wallet for that matter that supports BIP70 and pay seamlessly at any of those merchants. So that's really what we're trying to drive and investing in that area. We are also launching a couple of new products uh, around uh, helping merchants that accept Bitcoin Cash um, using Bitcoin.com products that can immediately use and connect to our pay server to automatically link to exchanges and have settlement in fiat instantaneously. So they don't actually need to cover if they're concerned about the crypto volatility that they can uh, minimize that exposure to the crypto volatility. Yeah, that, those are sort of around that. The other thing is getting the wallet distributed. How do we ensure adoption of our wallet? We love the wallet to be in front of as many users as possible. And to that extent, we see partnering with bigger OEMs or original equipment manufacturers in adopting the wallet, preloading that wallet and aligning that wallet with their customer and user base. And then lastly, sort of around the non-custodial financial services is we're building out the capability to enable users to write tokens to programmable, you know, programmable tokens to um, the Bitcoin Cash platform and promote that. And we're simplifying that so that you, through one website, can mint your token. You can then manage the tokens that you've minted. You can then distribute interest rates or uh, rewards or dividends to those token holders. And then ultimately, you can burn them as well. So how do you persuade retailers to adopt it? <laughs> um, well, retailers, I mean, ultimately, they can save a significant amount on transaction fees, right? The consumer doesn't notice. The consumer doesn't care. He wants to have that same replicated experience that he has when or she when they actually purchase using the uh, their existing payment methods. But the merchants, they're paying a 3%, 5% margin um, for every single transaction that goes over that point of sale. And we're living on thin margins, as the merchants do. I think this will help their economics significantly. What products do you plan to expand? So um, in terms of... For the merchants, we're, off, we're, we're partnering with payment processors to distribute uh, POS systems or integrate the ability to receive Bitcoin Cash at the merchants. And as a result, we're helping them on the back end connect and settle in fiat as they need around the world at any point in time. So that's a pay server that we're launching. Um, and, and lastly, on our website, you can see tools that we're offering where we offer our customers the ability to share dividends to uh, token holders uh, in the form of Bitcoin Cash or in the form of tokens. And that's another product we're launching. Um, and we'll be launching that in the uh, very short time window. So tell me, where does the blockchain industry still need to innovate in order to grow? What are the key areas of innovation? Um, I think, I don't know if we need to integrate, innovate a lot more. There's a lot of innovation. And I think the innovation is really coming around financial services. So the blockchain industry is bringing to the consumers what in the past 
has only been available to the high net worth individuals or multinational corporations in terms of access to trust funds, in terms of access to financial products um, and, and return on financial services. And so we're about helping the underbanked and the unbanked and the sort of middle class with access to services that are not as easily attainable to them as they are to some of the other part of the population or the minority part of the population, number one. And I think we're bringing that innovation to the market. Um, the other element I think we need to breach, and I don't think it's necessarily innovation. I think it's acquiring trust. I think we have a lot of the population interested in, 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 in crypto, in, 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 in financial services. However, they don't know what to do. So there's a large portion of education needed. We have, we're on this little crypto island. We have a lot of uh, tribes on those crypto islands that have carved out the pieces of land for ourselves. And we're improving ourselves by constantly having our tribalism and competing against each other and trying to add land to the island as we grow. But at the same time, the moat around the island is making it difficult for others to come in. So how do we simplify and make it easy for people outside crypto land to come in and if they wish to, to be able to leave? However, if they don't wish to, they can stay and, and, and remain there. That's about trust. It's about access. Um, so we need to build better bridges to come across, and those bridges need to be solid. We need to be build better airports, nicer hotels, and so that's solid. They can fly out again. Uh, there's not going to be a coup happening on Crypto Island and things like that. And that, I think, you know, it's an analogy to, I think, what we need to try and do in the crypto with something as sensitive as money. Uh, so, I mean, that lack of trust, is that uh, one of the big factors inhibiting the mass global adoption of crypto? I think trust and the regulators you know, um, sending a message out there that the crypto is intransparent. I think the regulators and the governments need to understand the transparencies and the advantages that they have from adopting uh, and, and only supporting um, cryptocurrencies in their markets and not spreading this false news and news bits and information associated with cryptocurrencies. Uh, a yep. lot of the banks have adopted crypto. Yeah, have they? I mean, I, I still see it's very hard for crypto exchanges and crypto users to get bank accounts to be able to quickly change and move their money into fiat. I still see challenges that we have there. Um, I think the bigger banking institutions are issuing bonds, going through the same mechanisms that they have in the past, but they are issuing bonds using uh, blockchain. Uh, so that's interesting. I think certain nations are trying to issue a cryptocurrency, e.g. what China's doing and I think what Turkey's announced. So there's some interesting movement there and, and we'll see where that has to go. Do you see uh, the moves like China uh, cr creating a new wave of consumer interest in crypto? Yeah, I think the support and the engagement by governments for a cryptocurrency definitely increases the confidence in the consumer base that this is now something not illegal. It is something that we can enter into. If you look at just what happened in China with the volume of search queries on the various uh, platforms in China, 
once the government said, we're going all in blockchain, the search queries for blockchain and Bitcoin spiked, you know, nearly 10, 20x, right? So significant numbers. So uh, the key will be getting the support of governments around the world. Yeah, I think the governments need to support it and embrace it. I think that will that will definitely help. Right, okay. Okay, well, Steve, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And now let's talk to Rabobank economist Michael Ever. Michael, Donald Trump says the completion of the first phase of the agreement between the US and China is near, but at the same time, Donald Trump has just signed the legislation uh, recognising or acknowledging the Hong Kong protesters, uh, which will no doubt anger China. Uh, where do you see the talks going? Well, the market reaction so far seems to imply that they're still on track and this marvellous, magical, magnificent, mysterious phase one trade deal, which we have been hearing about for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and which yet never materialises, is still on track to materialise at some point. You know, that being said, the market has been completely wrong on a number of key interpretations of... Uh, global geopolitical developments over the past couple of years. So it wouldn't surprise me if the market is wrong once again. I mean, clearly you can see that from Trump's point of view, he wants to try and get something in the bag to say, look, I got a victory in the run up to 2020. But equally, as we've continually argued, uh, he can't turn around and do that and put a really rotten deal on the table because it makes him extremely exposed to uh, political attack from both Republican hardliners uh, and from the Democrats, who can turn around and say, well, that's very, very weak on China, isn't it? So it's much harder for Trump to actually get something real and concrete to sign off on than people recognize. And from the Chinese perspective, they desperately need something because you know, their economy really is not doing well at all. But why should they give Trump that particular victory? Uh, and why should they sign on to even a phase one deal if it's really going to be quite painful for them? So I'm not saying it's impossible that we get a phase one deal at some point early next year now it looks more likely than next month but we've been arguing all along if we do it's an empty box with nothing inside it and you are quite correct the latest development with the signing of the legislation which we did expect and i was hearing whispers even yesterday that you wouldn't sign it but he did again it complicates matters even further and now it's over to china to see what they think oh China would also be watching what's happening with the impeachment inquiry as well and saying, well, let's just leave it till uh, we can negotiate with someone else. Possibly. Um, I mean, no one quite knows what the impeachment process is likely to deliver. Again, if you're looking at market, so far the understanding seems to be that it doesn't amount to anything. So, you know, Trump may well be impeached by the House of Representatives. That's not unlikely, but not guaranteed. Then it goes to a trial in the Senate and he'll be found innocent and all charges dismissed and we just carry on as we were. You know, we're only uh, 11 and a bit months away from the election in the US anyway. So from the Chinese perspective, that question over whether they'll get have new leadership to negotiate with is already at the forefront of their minds. And you're getting very mixed messages sent back. You know, some of them in the press are saying that actually they'd rather stick with Trump because they think he's actually relatively easy to deal with uh, because he's... You know, all about dollars and cents, and they can make some kind of uh, sense of that dollars and cents view. Uh, whereas they're afraid that some of the Democrats who might come in could actually start taking this into the realm of human rights, similar to the legislation that was just signed by Trump, of course. And if we start going down the more foreign policy morality path, 
there's no way you're going to get any deal done with China at all, being realistic. So uh, it's a very, very complicated picture. And I don't think China really uh, has a firm view of what it wants to do, because clearly Trump has been <laughs> not the easiest person for them to deal with. And so when you hear commentators say, well, we think he's the easier of the two, that just shows what a pickle they're really in. Indeed. And uh, the Chinese economy has not been doing that well, has it? No, no, it hasn't. I mean, official data are unreliable, unfortunately, but they are far from positive in most areas. Um, and China really is, we believe, hold below the waterline, if you think of it as being a giant ship. You know, it still looks impressive to, to an outsider from a distance, but actually it's leaking and it's leaking pretty badly. And the important thing to realise is it was leaking long before Donald Trump came along. And uh, even if this trade war were to be temporarily put on hold by a phase one deal, it will continue to leak because it's an internal problem. The structure of the economy needs to change. And to do that will involve such wrenching reform that it's questionable whether they're willing to embrace it. So they need to do something. And it's very unclear what they can actually do. They don't have any firm answers themselves. A trade deal would be very important for China. Well, it would take some of the pressure off them in the very near term if it actually amounted to something. If it was a genuine phase one deal leading to a phase two deal, um, you could, you know, the optimistic case is to say, right, China signs on the dotted line to everything the US wants, at which point that deal could be transformational, a real big bang that forces China to open its markets, to reform, restructure, and to become a much more uh, market-focused economy in, in many areas, which after some real wrenching changes would allow it to be much more productive and grow much faster in the long run. So that's your completely naive, never going to happen, optimistic point of view. You know, in a more realistic, cynical approach, even if, you know, you get some kind of optimism over a short-term can-kicking exercise, that at least takes some of the pressure off of Chinese exporters um, who are really starting to struggle uh, in, in some areas. But none of the above, uh, unless we do get that real transformational deal, is going to be the solution to China's problems. Because, as I said, the whole economic model is really running out of steam and, and needs to be reworked, and they're not quite sure what to do about it. So what kind of deal should both parties be aiming to achieve? Well, that's a very interesting question, because it depends what you believe they want to achieve in the first place. If you're dealing purely with economists or you're talking to analysts who only talk to traditional economists and politicians who only listen to traditional economists, then it should all be about you know, maximizing economic potential and the US should be looking to basically continue to buy cheap stuff from China and, uh, and China should be looking to buy as much from the US as it can do and everyone should be trying to maximize free trade as much as possible. Uh, and you know, we can all sit around the campfire singing Kumbaya, etc. And I cannot underline strongly enough what nonsense I think that is. Much more realistically, if you look at realpolitik, from the US perspective, it's how do we make sure that China doesn't overtake us in the 21st century? How do we ensure that without creating a recession in the US or in China in the near term, we make sure that they are not on the same exponential growth path that they have been up until now, such that within the next couple of decades, they can really push us off the pedestal of the world's key leading economy? And from the Chinese perspective, being realistic, it's the complete opposite. What can we give to the U.S. to make this all go away in the near term whilst ensuring we are still on the glide path, that we are the world's largest economy, and we are the benchmark for everything uh, economically, uh, financial market-wise, and politically in the 21st century? 
And that's why we are so cynical that a deal can be done about this, because please ignore what traditional economists say. They have been idiots in this entire process. They've been utterly wrong in predicting it was going to happen. And their analysis so far is just wrong, wrong and wrong again. This is all about a giant power struggle of which politics and economics are entwined together. Indeed. And so uh, uh, an optimum deal would be unlikely in that case. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the very best we think you can get is a can-kicking exercise, which doesn't actually have any content. Because, you know, China, for example, is is never going to take concrete action on its state-owned enterprises. They've made that very, very clear. Those are, you know, these giants are going to continue to merge and grow and have either free land or free electricity or very, very subsidized uh, costs of funding given to them forever to make sure that they can continue to become, you know, global titans that set the benchmark standards for industry after industry after industry. And if that means they put other countries' uh, com- uh, firms out of work, whether it's in the steel sector or you know, Huawei paying to do the same as 5G, that's the game plan. That's what the game plan is. Why should China change it? It has been working very successfully in their eyes up until now. And of course, it doesn't work so well when the political environment changes, but they're very slow to recognize that. And from the U.S. perspective, you know, really, they've had a, you know, a position of absolute authority post-World War II. Why should they squander that? Why should they give that up? Uh, I simply cannot see a realistic scenario in which any U.S. president turns around and says, yep, absolutely, uh, I'm a turkey and I want to vote for Christmas. I, I just don't see it. So the best we can expect is a can-kicking exercise, and in the end there'll be no, there'll be no proper trade deal at all. We don't think so, no. I mean... Even if you do get something that looks good on paper, how are you going to make China stick to it? I mean, you need to have an enforcement mechanism with teeth. So you'd need to have U.S. representatives on the ground in Beijing monitoring the Chinese economy, seeing what's going on in real time. And every time they slip from the standards they profess that they're going to meet, the U.S. being justified in putting tariffs back up again. They've actually said that's what they would like to do. There's no way Beijing will go for that. That is genuinely you know, uh, uh, an insult to their sovereignty. Uh, and they'll never stand for it. It's as simple as that. They openly use language saying this is the U.S. trying to impose humiliating terms on us, similar to uh, those that the British did uh, you know, after the, the Opium War. So, yeah, we, we simply don't see where the genuine consensus on a trade deal is. Now, of course, you are going to have so many talking heads, both in Australia and globally, coming out and saying what I'm saying is nonsense. Well, you know, they all benefit hugely from the delusion that this isn't going to happen. You know, if you look at the people coming out and saying this is really bad if it happens, I'm not saying it isn't bad if it happens. It is bad if it happens like this. But you know, that doesn't mean it isn't going to happen just because it's bad. Uh, and, and too many people who are talking are afraid to underline what the reality of the situation is because they've got too much skin in the game. Well, Michael, that is fascinating stuff, and thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too. So what's happening in the news? Well, President Donald Trump signaled he would be willing to wait for another year before striking a trade agreement with China, casting doubt on the likelihood of a Phase 1 accord within weeks between Washington and Beijing. I have no deadline, he told reporters Tuesday on London, when he asked if he wanted an agreement by the year end. Stocks dropped in Europe and US equity futures sold off, as Trump's comments indicated no urgency to reach a deal by December the 15th which U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross on Monday called a logical deadline. The Trump administration had threatened to impose tariffs on more Chinese imports starting that day. Those levies would hit American consumer products such as smartphones, toys and children's clothing in the days before the Christmas holiday. 
And US President Donald Trump also threatened to open up another front in his trade war with the rest of the world, warning he may slap tariffs on the dozen-plus NATO members that haven't met his demand to rev up their defence spending. Mr Trump has been insistent that members of the Transatlantic Military Alliance each take a proportionate share of the burden, equivalent to 2% of the GDP. Arriving in London on Tuesday for a NATO leaders' meeting, he warned that the laggards are going to be dealt with. And the Australian economy is looking pretty crook, according to the latest data, which suggests the stagnating economy is at risk of turning into something worse and teetering on the edge of recession. First, ANZ job ads slid a further 1.7% in November and are down almost 15% from the cyclical peak in November 2018. Although there's been a longer lag than usual, the downturn in the number of advertisements may be starting to filter through to the labour market. In October, we saw the first substantial fall in three years of 19,000 jobs in the employment numbers. And Australia's November AIG manufacturing PMI is down 3.5 points to 48.1. This tends to be volatile month to month, but suggests manufacturing growth is pretty weak. And the weakest productivity numbers in at least 25 years have unsettled the outlook for an economic recovery, a pickup in wage growth and a string of budget surpluses predicted by the Morrison government and the Reserve Bank of Australia. Labor productivity in Australia has fallen for the first time in 25 years, raising serious concerns about what economic reforms are in place to improve the productivity of workers. Official figures show that labor productivity fell 0.2% in fiscal 2019, or even more, down 0.8% when adjusted for the quality of work performed, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The figure is the first negative recording since the data series began in 1994. And predicted budget surpluses will not be as large as the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg boasted they would be in April, according to a new analysis. Deloitte Access Economics expects the Federal Government's budget update on the 16th of December will point to a surplus of $5.3 billion for the 2019-20 financial year, which would be smaller than the $7.1 billion forecast in April. Similarly, the budget surplus projection of 2020-21 is also expected to narrow to $8.4 billion, down from $11 billion. Economist and partner at Deloitte Access Economics, Chris Richardson, said that while overall strong commodity prices have benefited Australia, coal prices are now off the boil. And Australia's property frenzy is back in full swing, with home prices surging the most in 16 years in November. National property values jumped 1.7% last month, the largest gain since 2003, according to data from CoreLogic, released on Monday. Sydney and Melbourne continued to lead the rebound, with prices up 2.7% and 2.2%, respectively. Annualised gains over the past three months in both cities are tracking in the mid-20% range, CoreLogic said. At that rate, home values will recoup all their losses from the recent downturn and be back at record highs early next year. But... The number of building approvals fell by 0.8% in October, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and has been falling for 23 months. And according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the seasonally adjusted estimate for company gross operating profits fell 0.8% in the September quarter 2019. The seasonally adjusted estimate for wages and salaries rose 1% in the September quarter 2019. As expected... The RBA board at its final meeting for the year kept rates on hold at the historic low of 0.75%. The RBA stared down increasingly disappointing economic data, preferring to wait and assess the impact of the three cuts delivered since June. 
and the economy has posted annual growth of 1.7% in the September quarter, up from a decade low of 1.4%, according to numbers out on Wednesday, with GDP in the September quarter rising 0.4%. The annual rate of household consumption is 1.2%, down from 1.4%, indicating that the three interest rate cuts this year and the $7.8 billion in tax relief have not had quite the stimulatory effect the government had been hoping for. And Australia has recorded its second current account surplus, the first time in 46 years. The current account recorded a $7.9 billion surplus driven by steady growth in exports of iron ore and gas. The results far exceeded the consensus of economists for a $6.1 billion surplus and indicates Australia is becoming far less dependent on foreign capital. Official figures showed that the largest quarterly goods and services surplus on record of $21.1 billion and a smaller net income deficit of $13 billion, a measure of income flowing out of the country, contributed to the first time of two consecutive current account surpluses since 1973. And fears of a long, hot summer causing large-scale blackouts have forced the Australian energy market operator to lock in a record 1,600 megawatts of emergency reserves to help the electricity grid survive the next three months. Amid ongoing concerns about the deteriorating reliability of older coal-fired power stations, AMO Chief Executive Audrey Zibelman said the purchasing of reserve capacity was a necessary and cost-effective insurance policy to ensure the grid stays intact through the summer. It is estimated to cost the market operator $44 million. The AMO Summer Readiness Report said they were preparing for a hot summer with higher-than-average temperatures which can increase the likelihood of generator fails. They said there was a 10% chance of exceeding the maximum demand forecast for this summer. AMO said despite 3,700 megawatts of additional capacity coming into the grid since last summer, the bulk of which was rooftop and large-scale solar, there was still a possible shortfall of 125 megawatts in Victoria this summer. Bushfires also pose an ongoing and significant risk of transmission network disruption, according to AMO's assessment of the energy market. While the Bureau of Meteorology has forecast severe drought to persist over summer and an 80% chance that average temperatures would be hotter than normal. And retailers are hoping the tide has turned for consumer spending after stronger than expected sales over Black Friday and Cyber Monday and early signs confident improving as house prices rebound. Online retailers Amazon and Kogan broke sales records over the four-day shopping spree, and eBay, which was expecting double-digit sales growth, said spending rose more than four times faster than predicted. And the Morrison government has flagged worker empowerment measures such as employee share schemes as it seeks to change the conflict-based narrative on industrial relations to how cooperative workplaces could improve productivity and wages growth. Industrial Relations Minister Christian Porter released a discussion paper that seeks to collate best practice examples for businesses to create a harmonious workplace so as to foster innovation and lift wages. The paper flags the government would also take action to facilitate the cooperative model. Suggested ways to create cooperative workplaces include giving workers a financial interest in the company through employee share schemes, flat accountability structures and giving workers a voice in the decision-making process. Mr Porter's move follows stunning defeat in the Senate late last week when One Nation unexpectedly used its balance of power to block the Insurance Integrity Bill. And it comes amid concerns that slow wage growth is becoming entrenched. Reserve Bank Deputy Governor Guy DeBell last week said annual pay increases of 2% to 3% a year had become the norm in Australia. And the Prudential Regulator will examine the departure of former Westpac Compliance Officer Amanda Wood, who was reportedly demoted after flagging breaches at the heart of the scandal engulfing the bank. Australian Prudential Regulation Authority Wayne Burrs told a parliamentary hearing on Monday 
that its investigation into Westpac over the 234 million money laundering breaches will focus on culture and governance failures, including whether internal red flags were ignored. An industry fund's First Super, TWU Super and Sun Super are pushing for more executive accountability at Westpac and are ready to split for influential Australian Council of Superannuation investors over board appointments and remuneration at the embattled bank's upcoming annual general meeting. And former Senator Nick Xenophon says Chinese tech giant Huawei has been treated incredibly unfairly. So for a fee, he's going to help turn things around. And Huawei is delighted to have the former senator, or more correctly, the law firm he recently established with former journalist Mark Davis, on board as its new strategic council. Huawei says Mr Xenophon will be helping to defend our company locally against malicious and false attacks designed to cause us reputational damage. That reputational damage has come on the back of suggestions that Huawei, the world's biggest phone supplier, is too cosy with Beijing and has been using its equipment to spy on other countries and companies. Recent reports that it's been helping censor and surveil Uyghur Muslims for the Chinese Communist Party have reinforced that narrative. In 2018, Australia banned Huawei from its 5G rollout and the US has led a campaign to have its allies follow suit. America has also forbidden the use of the telco's networking equipment. Mr Xenophon questioned the logic of an earlier ban on its equipment being used for the National Broadband Network after a news emerged in 2017 that 40 Huawei phones had been purchased for Defence and Foreign Affairs in March of that year. He was also part of the Economics References Committee's inquiry into the Foreign Investment Review Framework, which reported in 2016. And betting retailer Adairs is outlaying about $85 million in cash and shares to buy pure play online furniture and homewares retailer Mocha. Mocha is a 12-year-old family-owned, vertically integrated online retailer which sells indoor, outdoor and nursery furniture, home decor products such as rugs, mirrors and cushions, and home storage products. The acquisition is aimed at differentiating Adair's product range, boosting sales in New Zealand and accelerating its online sales growth. The purchase price includes $43.4 million in cash and $5.7 million in a scroud Adair's shares upfront, as well as deferred payments based on Mocker's earnings over the next three years. And Woolworths is facing a class action over the payment shortfalls to its salaried store employees over a two-year period. The company was informed that a Canberra law firm intends to file an employee class action proceedings against it in the Federal Court of Australia. Adero Law estimates the underpayment bill at $620 million. In late October, the company discovered it had underpaid a number of its staff by $300 million. The group is making interim payments to the affected staff and is estimating the one-off payments could be in the range of $200 million to $300 million before tax. And the country's largest shopping mall, Chadston, is about to get even bigger. Retail landlord vicinity centres will pump another $685 million into developing its trophy centre in Melbourne's eastern suburbs, announcing plans to add more levels on two car parks, a nine-storey commercial office and an upgraded fresh food precinct. The works, which also include an expansion of Chadston's extensive dining and leisure precinct, will need approval from the local council and a green light from the centre's half-owner, billionaire shopping magnate John Gandall. The flagship centre is one of the landlord's best trading malls, underpinning the group's profits and making up 21% of the value of the vicinity's property portfolio. And the federal court has fined Optus $6.4 million for the misleading customers over the time frame 
with a mandatory switch to the NBN in a case brought by the Australian Competition Consumer Commission. The court ruled in favour of ACCC's claim that Optus made misleading claims about home internet disconnection to consumers in an effort to win broadband customers from its competitors. The ACCC said Optus had emailed 138,988 of its mobile customers saying their home broadband services which were provided by Optus's competitors would be disconnected very soon. It urged them to make the switch to Optus's NBN products before it's too late. Once homes are ready to connect to the NBN, they have 18 months before the legacy ADSL or cable connections are switched off. Both NBN Co and retail service providers give customers repeated notifications over that 18-month period. And conservationists have launched a court battle against Clive Palmer's proposed Queensland coal mine, saying it will destroy wildlife and impact graziers. The owners of the 8,000-hectare Bimberbox Nature Refuge in central Queensland have filed an objection to Waratah Coal's proposed mining project in the Galilee Basin on Monday in the Land Court in Brisbane. The Bimberbox co-owner, Paola Cassoni, says Palmer wants to build a mine that will destroy a nature reserve where more than 150 bird species, including the endangered black-throated finch and other wildlife have been observed. And Graincore is set to pocket a bittersweet insurance payout of about $57.3 million after Australia's driest spring on record slashed national crop production forecasts. Official Commonwealth forecaster Abares has cut its winter grain production estimates from 33.9 million tonnes in September to just 29.4 million tonnes, a fall of 13% in three months, with harvest already over or drawing to a close in many farming regions. The production downgrade comes after a combination of record low rainfall and Australia's fifth warmer spring, exacerbated by a prolonged drought in much of Queensland and New South Wales. And the consumer watchdog has blasted Coles, West Farmers and Woolworths for automatically linking credit cards and loyal, with loyal schemes, saying the practice is problematic and causes consumer harm. In its final report into loyalty programs, the Australian Competition Consumer Commission said the links decrease privacy while also increasing risks of discrimination and exclusion. ACCC Chairman Rod Sims said the providers of the schemes could profile their customers, presenting opportunities to employ price discrimination techniques against some customers. And takeover target Caltex has given its Canadian suitor encouragement that its $80.6 billion takeover offer is not too far off the mark, offering it limited access to its accounts at the same time as rejecting the $34.50 a share price as inadequate. The move came after discussions with investors. The feedback was that the price was skinny, representing just a premium calculated at 15.8%, Caltex Chief Financial Officer Matthew Halliday said. It has left Quebec-based Element Couche-Tard, which argues the premium is more than double that, well short of the full due diligence and exclusivity on negotiations that it wanted. But it still leaves scope for a friendly deal and comes as little surprise to the market where investors and analysts have been signalling they expected a sweeter price would be needed. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Matt Pohl, an experienced business leader with a passion for innovation. He's recently founded Neos or neos.co.uk, which is an insured tech business that is focused on delivering smart home protection products and services. Prior to this, he spent 15 years in the insurance industry working in the UK and US with AXA and RSA. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, TalkingBizBLZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.